Well, we're going to turn our hearts now to the Lord's uh, Word and once again reopen the book of 1 Peter together as we continue this study. Uh, firm in the faith, looking at Peter's uh, en- encouragements and guidance to the early church 2,000 years ago. And today we're going to see some words that really uh, piggyback well with the celebration we just had, uh, thanking God for the work of these women and and their service to the kingdom. I'm going to open a word of prayer and ask God to bless our time together as we look at uh, this next section of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the joy of being gathered together this morning as your people. Thank you for the opportunity to sing your praises to lift your name on high, Lord. Thank you for uh, what a special treat it was to celebrate uh, Aaron, Diane, and Carrie and their service to you. We thank you for those ladies again, Lord, and may they just feel loved and valued. Uh, We pray, God, now that as we once again return to the book of 1 Peter, to this letter that was written 2,000 years ago for brothers and sisters in Christ that we, we won't know until we meet them in glory. But, but brothers and sisters in Christ who dealt with many of the same challenges that we face and uh, wrestled with the reality of living as your people in this world, as, as exiles in a, in a land far from our true home, our heavenly home. And all of the challenges that come with that. And, and yet you gave Peter these words, Lord, to encourage them, to inspire them. And they can do the same for us as well today. And so I pray that as we look to this passage of Scripture, you might remind us in a powerful way today of, of the reality of who we are uh, and all that you've done for us and all that you've called us to, that you would uh, remind us of our true identity as your people because of Jesus. And so we commit this time to you asking this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, when I was in eighth grade, I had one of the toughest years of my life. It was a year of transition for me. I had grown up in a, in a small Christian school, going to a private Christian school in Minnetonka, uh, Chapel Hill Academy. And uh, my classes growing up those first seven, uh, seven years of my school, from kindergarten through seventh grade, I mean, I had friends in those classes that became like family to me, brothers and sisters. We had, we had classes of like 10, 12 students. So, I mean, they were small classes. We got to know each other incredibly well. But when I came to eighth grade, I had to transition out of uh, my, my Christian school and, uh, and move to the public school. And so uh, I was from Eden Prairie, and so for me, that meant going to uh, Central Middle School in Eden Prairie, which, uh, which at the time was one of the largest junior high schools in the metro area. And uh, I went from a school where I had a class of about 12 fellow students who were, who were genuinely like family to me to all of a sudden walking into a brand new school with over a thousand students and feeling like I was completely alone in the midst of this incredible crowd of students, other young kids that I, I didn't know. And I remember going to school that first day and just feeling completely overwhelmed and, uh, and, and I remember vividly to this day walking into the lunchroom that first day of school. And uh, some of you might be able to relate to this. I remember walking into this lunchroom wondering, you know, who am I going to sit with? Will I know anybody? And, and I walked in and I didn't recognize anybody. I didn't recognize, you know, any of the neighborhood kids that I had grown up with. And, and here I was in this massive lunchroom with a few hundred other students. And, and I was this, you know, 13, 14-year-old eighth grader. And, and I just felt completely alone. 
I remember going through the lunch line and, and I was looking around trying to figure out where I would sit and I found a, a table where there was an opening and I just went off and I sat by myself and, and I felt this overwhelming sense of loneliness. Like, like nobody in that whole room could care less that I was there. And I felt like I was just a nobody. And I remember that very powerfully. It was it was a difficult time, and it was a hard period of transition for me over the course of a few months as I got acclimated to that new culture, that new setting. I was reminded of that experience this week as I was thinking about our passage today. Because, if you recall, the Apostle Peter was writing to early Christians 2,000 years ago in the region known as Asia Minor, which is essentially modern-day Turkey, if you, if you look on a map. And, and these Christians were scattered throughout this region of Asia Minor, and, and these were people who had recently come to the Christian faith out of their former pagan cultures and backgrounds. And I started thinking this week about my experience in, in moving to the public school and, and not knowing anybody and just feeling like I was a total outsider, totally alone. And, and I started thinking to myself that I wonder if that's how these first century Christians in Asia Minor must have felt. After having left their pagan background behind to follow Jesus Christ, and now all of a sudden they find themselves almost like strangers in the midst of their own culture. These were people who had basically forsaken everything for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of following Jesus, and they had left their culture behind, and now everything that was once their identity was gone. They had, they had lost their identity. They had lost their former associations. They, they would have had to have given up relationships and friendships and family and sometimes careers and jobs for the sake of Jesus. And, and so they had given up these, these former things that once defined them and, and that they identified with. And, and they were probably at a point where they were wondering if God really cared. I mean, you know, is this really worth it? Is this really true and, and a foundation to build my life on? And, and if so, why is it so hard? Why is it so difficult? And, and I think they were longing for a sense of identity and belonging and purpose. And I think a lot of us can relate to that feeling. I think even more and more as our world increasingly goes away from the, the Christian consensus that once defined much of our culture, here, especially here in the Western world, I think many of us increasingly feel like we're strangers in, in a place that we used to know as our home culture, and, and yet it's like a foreign territory, a foreign land. And we wrestle with some of these same feelings, feeling out of place in this world, feeling like we don't really have an identity anymore, wondering if, if our lives really matter, if anyone truly cares. And I'd be willing to bet that many of you have felt that way or have experienced those, those stirrings, those questionings, those concerns. And if that's where you're at this morning, friends, I want to encourage you to pay special attention to our passage today. Because today, <clears throat> the Apostle Peter, in our passage in chapter 2 of his letter, is going to remind us of the profound reality 
of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. He's going to remind us of who we are in Him and and the identity that we have in Him. And, And not just this glorious identity that we have as followers of Christ, but really the wondrous purpose that God has called us to. And so if you're somebody who struggles with your identity and wondering if your life is meaningful and if anyone cares and if who you are really matters, let me tell you, friends, today's passage is for you. I want you to pay a special attention to what Peter has to say to us this morning. <coughs> Excuse me. We're in First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10 today. I want to read this passage, and then I want to come back, and I want to highlight three things that we learn about who we are as God's people, as followers of Jesus from Peter here in our passage. Peter picks up here in chapter 2 and verse 4. He says, As you come to him, to Jesus, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling. And a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What an incredible passage. What a, what a great word of encouragement for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ today. Peter here in our passage reminds us of three key points of our identity in Jesus Christ. He, he starts out, he says, number one, as followers of Jesus Christ, he says, we are living stones He calls us living stones. When I was a young boy, I remember one Christmas, my Uncle Peter, and and my Uncle Peter, you know, every family has a crazy uncle, right? Well, my Uncle Peter is our family's version of the the crazy uncle, just a super fun guy. And uh, every Christmas, we could always count on Uncle Pete to to bring us a a funny gay gift to the the event, right? And so we're opening Christmas presents, and I remember as a little boy, one Christmas, my Uncle Peter gave my dad... A, a really special gift. I mean, one of, the, one of the most incredible gifts you could ever give somebody. He gave my dad a pet rock. You guys remember the pet rock, right? I mean, these were huge back in the, in the late 1970s. They were, they were like, you know, one of the, the big novelty gifts that people were giving away. And I remember when I, I was this little boy, and here my dad unwraps this pet rock, and I was thinking to myself, pet rock? I mean, What? What is this, right? And, and it's crazy, right? It's, this, it's literally a rock, 
And it comes in this box with little air holes, you know, so supposedly the rock can breathe, right? And, and then it has a little nest in there for the rock to sit in. And, and then the greatest part about it is it comes with an instruction book, how to care for your pet rock, right? Now, this was a huge hit. I mean, the guy who, who invented the pet rock, his name was Gary Dahl. He became a millionaire selling these things. I mean, it, it, incredible, right? I mean, it was just one of those, you know, stroke of genius ideas. But, but people bought them by the millions because they were just so funny. It was just so absurd. And, and, and the humor and the gift was that everybody knows that a rock is not a living thing, right? And so, like, how ridiculous that you have this pet rock with, you know, oxygen holes to breathe and a nest to sit in and instructions to care for. Because everybody knows that, that rocks aren't alive. But in our passage this morning, the Apostle Peter tells us that as God's people, we come to a stone that is alive. He he calls it a living stone that we come to. Verse 4 of our passage begins with these words, As you come to him, a living stone. Now that phrase in the Greek, friends, is actually just one word. That's just one word in the Greek. The word is proserkomai, and it means to move towards or to come near to or to seek an association with someone or something. And so, so Peter is saying, look, as you move towards him, as you seek association with him, and remember, he's talking about Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Because last week, verse 3, the, the passage we looked at last week, ends with the statement, taste and see that the Lord is good, right? Remember, Peter was just encouraging us to to taste and see that the Lord is good. And now he tells us as you move towards him, as you seek association with, with him, with Jesus, the one who is the living stone, Peter goes on to tell us that this living stone then transforms us as well into living stones. Now we need to unpack this a little bit because it's important that we understand the full significance of of this imagery that Peter uses here. When he talks about Jesus as the living stone, when he, when he calls us living stones in, in Jesus, right? As we see in our passage today, our, our passage is full of references to Jesus as the stone, the cornerstone, the rock. And these are all allusions that Peter uses that come directly out of the Old Testament. Isaiah 28, 16, Psalm 118, 22, Isaiah 8, 14. These are all allusions Peter uses from the Old Testament, Old Testament prophecies pointing to the coming Messiah that Peter is inserting here to remind us that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament promises. He's the rock we were waiting for. He's the cornerstone that was coming. He He's the he is the living stone who then turns us into living stones as well. And and so Peter is pointing us to this imagery to understand who Jesus is. Now now while Peter uses all of these references to rocks and stones and cornerstones here in our passage, I can't help but think that there was probably a, another rock reference that Peter had in mind when he encourages us to come to Jesus, the living stone, the one who transforms us into living stones. Living stones that are being used by God, built up, he says, into a spiritual house. 
The, the reference that I'm thinking of comes out of the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. And it's an interesting exchange that Peter has with Jesus. Let, let me read this for you, and then I want to explain the significance of this passage and, and why I think this passage was probably in Peter's mind when he tells us to come to Jesus, the living stone who is building us up as living stones into a spiritual house. So, so in Matthew 16, 13 through 18, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. That was Peter's name. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, now, this is an incredibly important passage in, in really the whole scope of the Gospels, this exchange that Jesus has with Peter. Jesus here, in his answer to Peter, Jesus uses a play on words in the original Greek. And, and the play on words is this. In, in the original Greek, the words for Peter and rock sound very similar. They're almost identical. When Jesus takes... Simon's response, Simon Barjona, and in response to Jesus, Jesus renames Simon. He says, you are Peter. You are now Peter. He gives him a new name. And the word for Peter that Jesus uses there is Petros. And in the Greek, the word Petros refers to a small stone. Like, like a little pebble, the kind of little stone that would get stuck in your shoe and just kind of create an annoyance, right? That's a Petros. That's, that's Peter. That's the word for Peter. So Jesus says, you are Petros. You are Peter. And then he says, and on this rock, I will build my church. Now, the word for rock that he uses there is Petra. And Petra in the Greek refers to a massive stone, a foundation stone. And so what Jesus was saying here to Peter is he was saying, you are Peter, you are the little stone, and on this rock, this massive foundation stone, I am going to build my church. Now, what was the massive foundation stone that Jesus was referring to? It was Peter's declaration that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter had just declared the reality of who Jesus is. Jesus says, who do people say I am? And the disciples say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're a prophet. And, and Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so Jesus says, you are now Peter, the small stone, and it's on this rock, the foundation of who I am as the Messiah, that I am going to build my church. Now, I think this was probably in the background of Peter's mind as he's writing our passage this morning. This would have been a hugely significant event in the life of the Apostle Peter. And, and by the way, this is one of the key differences. This, this distinction that you see on the screen behind me, this is one of the key differences today between the Protestant church and the Catholic church. 
Some of you here today come out of a Catholic background, and, and I've often been asked, you know, what's the difference, you know, Pastor Jason, between our church, a Protestant church, and, and those churches that are Catholic churches? Well, there are a number of differences. One of the primary differences is the Protestant church doesn't recognize the authority of the Pope as the universal head of the church. We, we don't recognize the authority of the Pope. He has no oversight authority over our church or our denomination or the decisions we make. And so sometimes people ask, well, Jason, why, why is it that we don't recognize the Pope and why does the Catholic Church recognize the Pope that way? Well, friends, you need to understand what the Catholic Church has done is they misinterpret Jesus' words here to the Apostle Peter. The Catholic Church today teaches that when Jesus says to Peter, you are the rock, and on this rock I'm going to build my church, they, they apply that to mean that Peter was the rock, that Peter was the foundation stone, that he was the one upon whom the church would be built. And so the Catholic Church applies that statement to Peter the man and then says that every subsequent leader of the church after Peter, every subsequent pope would equally be the foundation of the church. Now, for example, you can read this right out of the Catholic Church's own catechism in paragraph 882. The Catholic Catechism says the Pope, Bishop of Rome, and Peter's successor is the perpetual and visible source and foundation of the unity of the bishops and of the whole company of the faithful, of the whole church. The, the Pope is the foundation of the church. For the Roman pontiff, by the reason of his office as vicar of Christ and as pastor of the entire church, has full supreme and universal power over the whole church, a power which he can always exercise unhindered. Friends, where do they get that from? They get that from a misinterpretation of Matthew chapter 16. Jesus wasn't saying to Peter, Peter, you're the foundation stone. Peter, you're the one on whom I'm going to build my church. That's not biblical at all. No, what Jesus was saying to Peter is, you're the little stone, Peter. And it's on your declaration of who I am as the Messiah, the Christ. It's on that massive foundation stone that I am going to build my church. And so we, this is an important distinction, friends. If, if anyone ever asks you, you know, well, why don't we recognize the authority of the Pope? Well, it's because that authority is purely out of man-made tradition. It has no biblical basis at all. And, and so, again, we come back to Scripture, and when we look at Scripture, we find that the Catholic Church's claim about the Pope runs directly counter to what God's Word tells us. Peter, in our passage this morning, tells us that Jesus is the living stone. Peter tells us that Jesus is the cornerstone upon which God was going to build his church. Not Peter, not the Pope, not any man. It was Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, who would be the foundation of, of the church. Peter never claimed that kind of authority for himself. Nowhere did Peter ever claim that kind of authority for himself. Instead, what we find in Scripture is Peter is always pointing people to Jesus. Jesus is the foundation stone. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the cornerstone. And Jesus is the living stone because he was God's promised Messiah who verified that claim, validated that claim by rising victoriously from the grave. Jesus was the stone that the builders rejected who has now become the cornerstone 
the most important stone in the whole building. Friends, when Peter calls Jesus the cornerstone, that was a specifically chosen reference, right? A cornerstone in an ancient stone masonry building, right? The cornerstone wasn't just a massive foundation stone, but it also set the angle for the rest of the building. If that cornerstone wasn't cut at a precisely right angle, the whole rest of the building would be askew. And so the cornerstone was important not only because it provided the foundation, but it provided the direction and guidance to lead the builders in creating the rest of the building. And that's what Peter's getting at when he describes Jesus as the cornerstone. He's not only the foundation of the church, but he aligns the church under the authority of God's will. And so that's why we build our lives on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And it was because of Jesus' death and resurrection and his faithfulness to God the Father that God exalted Jesus to where Jesus, Jesus now rules and reigns over the entire church. And not just the church, but the whole universe. As the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, And being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him. He, he has risen him from the grave, and he's ascended into heaven, and he's bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, Jesus is the living stone. Jesus is the foundation stone. Jesus is the cornerstone, the head of the church. And this is why in our passage this morning, Peter declares that all who come to Jesus are also transformed into living stones. How does that happen? Well, it happens, friends, because God applies the very same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the grave. He applies that resurrection power to us, too. And so God saves us through Jesus, and he regenerates us. He brings us back to life through Jesus. As the prophet Ezekiel prophesied 600 years before Jesus Christ, And I will give you a new heart, God says, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is what God does to us through Jesus. He turns us into living stones. He takes our heart of stone, a heart of stone that is living in sin and in rebellion against God, a heart of stone that can never do anything to regenerate itself. Why? Because like the pet rock, stones are dead. God says, you have a heart of stone without me. But if you trust in Jesus, I'm going to take that heart of stone And I'm going to apply Jesus' saving, resurrecting, regenerating power to your heart of stone. And I'm going to remove that heart of stone. And I'm going to turn it into a heart of flesh. And I'm going to turn you into a true living being. Who, as Jesus says in John 10.10, experiences life and life abundant. Friends, that only happens through the saving, transforming power of Jesus. And so it's through his resurrection power. And the Holy Spirit who comes and lives within us, that we too become living stones, who Peter then says are being built up by God as a spiritual house. 
So, so it's not just that we're living stones, fellow living stones with Jesus, but Jesus then takes all of us living stones and he begins to build us up, Peter says, into a spiritual house. And, and here, when Peter uses this reference to this spiritual house, he probably has in mind the temple. Right, the temple in Jerusalem, which which at one time was the dwelling place of God, and now Peter's telling us as Christians, look at you're the spiritual house now, you're the temple, you're the dwelling place of God. When 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 you trust in Jesus and the Holy Spirit comes and lives within you, you literally become a vessel of the living God. And so now we don't need to go to the temple to experience the presence of God because the presence of God is within us. We are being built up together as a spiritual house, the gathering place, the dwelling place of God. And then more than that, he, he describes us not only as a, a spiritual house, as a temple, but, but this is important to understand, friends, the word house here that he uses. When he says we're being built up into a spiritual house, the word house there in the Greek is oikos. It refers to a household or a family. A form of that word oikos is oikia. We have one of our ABF groups named oikia. That word means household or family. So, so Peter's saying, look, not only is he building you up to be a new temple, but you are being built up together as a spiritual family, a spiritual household. You're part of the family of God. Now, I want you to just step back for a moment and think about how significant these words would have been for these first century Christians. These first century Christians who found themselves in a culture where they didn't belong anymore. A a, a pagan culture that had rejected them because they chose to follow Jesus. A a pagan culture that didn't understand their new way of life and why they chose to forsake everything that, that was so common to the world around them. A culture where many of these Christians would have been displaced from their families and their jobs because they chose to follow Jesus. Christians who would have experienced persecution in a variety of forms because of their choice to follow Jesus. And now here comes Peter telling them that you're a living stone. And you're part of God's family. And God not only lives in you, but he is using your life to create a spiritual house that is the new representation of the temple of God to the world. And that house represents the worldwide family of God that you are now a part of because of your trust in Jesus. Friends, I I can't help but think that as these Christians started to reflect on all of these truths that Peter was reminding them of, that their spirits would have been buoyed and, and begun to overflow with joy as they thought about the reality of who they were and their significance because of their faith in Christ, their trust in Christ, and how he had transformed them into living stones, into a spiritual house. And, and friends, I want you to think about this. Make no mistake about it. No matter where you go in the world, Jesus Christ is building his church. And that church is made up of living stones. That God is using living stones from every tribe, every people, every language. He's building up a spiritual household to be the family of God. And we today, friends, we have literally millions and millions of brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. Worshipping the same Jesus as we're worshipping. 
part of the same spiritual household that we're a part of. These ladies we celebrated today were a part of bringing these living stones into the spiritual house that God is building. What an honor. I, I, I remember I've, I've had the privilege of traveling all over the world, 30 countries and six continents, and, and, and one of the greatest joys that you can experience if you ever have the opportunity to travel and do missions work and, and worship with brothers and sisters in Christ is to recognize that no matter where you go in the world, if you're standing next to a, a fellow believer in Jesus Christ, that, that they are living stones alongside of you, part of God's spiritual house. I, I remember one of my trips to Cuba, for example, where my brother and I, we, we were on a teaching team, and my dad and his buddy were sent one direction, and we were sent another direction, and some guy came and picked us up in a Jeep. We didn't know this guy. We could barely speak to this guy. And it was late at night. He took us way out into the remote jungles of Cuba, outside Santiago, Cuba, the second largest city in Cuba. Drove us over an hour out into the middle of the jungles. I, we, we had no idea where we were. We had no idea where this guy was taking us. And we pulled into this remote village, dirt roads and huts all around the outside of the village. And, and he led us into this small little building which was the, the village's church. And this church was made literally of, of stick walls, like just tiny stick walls with a thatched roof. The, the pews in the church were cinder blocks with two-by-fours across the top of them. And, and we came in, and we were supposed to preach to this church, and, and this church was probably about 20, 30 people packed into this little stick building, little stick hut. And it was pitch black outside, and there was a single light bulb hanging from the ceiling. And I remember standing there hearing these brothers and sisters of Christ singing their hearts out to the Lord. And I remember thinking, man, this is the family of God. These are my brothers and sisters, and we're going to spend eternity together. These were fellow living stones that God was building up into his spiritual household. And I had the privilege of being in their midst, being a part of that. Friends, make no mistake, God is building his church. And we, too, here at Lakes Free, we're part of that church. We're part of that spiritual household, that worldwide family of God. What a great joy and privilege to know our identity in Christ as, as God's elect, God's chosen. Chosen before the foundation of the world, as Peter tells us in the opening verses of his letter. What a greater, great identity, and what greater identity could any of us ever ask for? But, but, Peter tells us there's even more to our identity. He goes on and he says, secondly, we're a holy priesthood. He says in verse 5 that not only are we living stones being built into the spiritual house, but we're also a holy priesthood. I talked about the difference between Catholics and Protestants a few minutes ago and the Pope being one of those primary differences. Well, the Protestant Reformation began in the year 1517 when a Roman Catholic scholar by the name of Martin Luther, Martin Luther, who was a Roman Catholic scholar, he began to study the Scriptures and he began to realize that, that there were many things, there were many things in the Bible that didn't correspond with the man-made traditions of the Catholic Church. And so in 1517, Martin Luther wrote what is called the 95 Theses, this document of 95 protestations or points of dissent, and he nailed it to the Catholic Church door in Wittenberg, Germany, as like a public testament. And this document says, I protest, I dissent, and it went on to describe all of the ways that, that the Catholic Church was out of alignment with God's Word. 
Now, our passage that we're in this morning was tremendously significant to Martin Luther. This was one of his favorite passages in the Bible, and it was significant to him because this is where he got the idea of the priesthood of the believers. The priesthood of believers. It was a, it was a term that Luther talked about often. And, and what he meant by that was he pointed to this text when, when God says that we are a holy priesthood. And Luther explained that because of that, what that means is that we no longer need special mediators between us and God. We don't need to go to a priest to perform the Mass on our behalf to have a right relationship with God. We don't need to go to a priest to to confess our sins and and, and share with him as a mediator between us and God. No, we are a spiritual priesthood, Peter says. And, And we have the ability to go directly to Jesus Christ because of what he's done for us and because of the Holy Spirit that lives within us. And and so we have direct access to God, and we are called to be in service to God as a holy priesthood. Peter goes on in our passage, he tells us that as this holy priesthood, we are to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, what are the spiritual sacrifices he's talking about here? He's certainly not talking about the Old Testament animal sacrifices in the temple because we know Jesus died on the cross as the perfect sacrifice, the perfect Lamb of God. He, he once and for all time did away with the priestly sacrificial system. We no longer need to bring an offering of atonement shedding its blood for our sins because Jesus shed his blood as the perfect sacrifice for our sins, the perfect substitute for you and for I. So what are the spiritual sacrifices that he's talking about here that we offer as the holy priesthood? Well, I think Peter had in mind probably a number of things. And if we look to other passages of the New Testament, we see where these spiritual sacrifices are described in in greater detail. For example, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So one of the ways that we offer sacrifices to God is by presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. And what that means is that Paul is calling us to a lifestyle of obedience. We honor God with our lives, everything we are, who we are, as as an act of sacrifice to God. The, The author of Hebrews goes on and he explains more. What are these living sacrifices, these spiritual sacrifices that we're to bring to God? The author of Hebrews says, through him, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So so what are spiritual sacrifices here? Well, the author of Hebrews says one aspect of our spiritual sacrifice is praise. And so praise, for example, is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. One of the ways that we do that is we come together on Sunday mornings and we sing praise to God through our lips, exalting his name, right? That's what we're doing when we gather and we sing together. We are praising God. That's one act of spiritual worship, spiritual sacrifice. The author of Hebrews says another aspect of this is, is to do good, to do good works for the sake of the kingdom, to do good for one another and for the world around us. And so we serve others and we love others and we show compassion on others. That's part of the spiritual sacrifice that we offer. And then he says, 
we also share what we have. He, he's speaking there about how we use our finances for the sake of the kingdom, right? That, that our finances are often used for the sake of advancing the name of Jesus. And, and that can mean, again, supporting somebody in need. It can mean caring for the poor. It can mean supporting the mission of your local church through your tithes and offerings. But, but all of these things, friends, are a part of the spiritual sacrifices that we offer as the holy priesthood. So, friends, make no mistake about it. When, when we talk about worship... Worship is far more than just what we get out of our time at church on Sunday morning, right? Worship is more than just, you know, I show up at church and I hope I like the songs that we sing today and I hope the preacher's entertaining this morning. That's not worship. Worship is about a lifestyle of offering spiritual sacrifices to the Lord as his holy priesthood. That's what we're called to do. It involves giving our entire lives to Him. It involves exalting His name through praise. It involves doing good works on behalf of the Lord, being His hands of feet to the world. It involves giving our money and our resources for the sake of the Lord's work. We are to give our all. That's what it means to be a holy priesthood. And again, friends, think about what a privilege this is. To serve the, the King of the universe. And again, you don't have to be of a special class to be a part of this holy priesthood. You, you don't have to have the right education to be a part of this holy priesthood. You don't have to prove your worthiness to serve to be a part of this holy priesthood. Peter says every single one of us can experience this calling through Jesus Christ and through his amazing grace. Isn't that awesome? What a gift that we have when we trust in Jesus. He invites us to become living stones. He invites us to become a holy priesthood. I want to wrap up this morning. Point number three. Peter tells us that we are God's special people. In verses 9 and 10, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There's a lot that we could say about these passages, friends, but I want to draw our attention to Peter's statement that, that we are a people for his own possession. A people for God's own possession. And I want you to understand the significance of what that means for you today, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Have you ever noticed, friends, how so many times in our world, ordinary things, things that regularly would hold little value to anybody, can all of a sudden become extremely valuable because of who once possessed them? Have you ever experienced that or seen that? My dad, for example, has a cousin. He lives in upstate New York. He's a lawyer, and his hobby over the years has been collecting antiques and relics that were owned by famous people. And he has this incredible collection. His house is like a museum. He's got all these glass cases full of 
envelopes with, you know, addresses that were written out by former presidents. He's got, you know, pens that once belonged to famous prime ministers like Winston Churchill. He has, you know, articles of clothing that belong to famous people. He's got, he's got relics that used to belong to Adolf Hitler, for example. I mean, all kinds of just crazy stuff from some of these incredibly famous people. And, and you would look at these things... You'd look at, for example, a tiny little pen, a little fountain pen. You would think, what's the big deal, right? Just a little pen. But because Winston Churchill once used that pen, it's worth thousands of dollars. These ordinary things that all of a sudden take on incredible worth because of the person who owned them. And friends, I want you to understand this morning in the very same way. Peter reminds us here in verse 9 of our passage that we are people of incredible worth and immeasurable value because of the one we belong to. When Peter says we are God's people, his own possession, we were chosen by him, we were purchased by the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ, Peter says you are a people for his own possession and it's because we are owned by God that we are of incredible worth. You ever struggle with your identity, friends? You ever struggle with whether your life counts for anything, has any value? God says, you're my possession. The king of the universe has called you his. And if you understand that reality, friends, you will recognize that in God's eyes, you are priceless. What an incredible blessing we have in Jesus. You were so loved, so valuable, that God paid the ultimate price to make you his. Wow. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy because of Jesus Christ. Don't ever doubt your value, friends. Don't ever doubt your worth. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the words of the Apostle Peter this morning and the reminder of who we are in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that these truths would soak deep into our hearts today and that we would leave here overwhelmed with joy, knowing who we are as your special people, living stones, being built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood called to your service, people of your own possession, people of priceless worth in your eyes because you were willing to lay down your son's life, Jesus, for us. God, thank you for your incredible love. Thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for the identity that we have in you. And as Peter reminds us in our passage, may this knowledge of our identity motivate us to go out and, and share the reality of your excellencies with the world around us, pointing other people to the amazing grace and life and hope and identity that's available to us in Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We pray all this in your great name. Amen. Friends, I'm going to invite you to stand for our benediction this morning. Comes, comes to us out of 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God bless you and have a terrific week. Amen. Hi everybody, Pastor Jason here. And I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. 
I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church. You can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free. And you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests. And we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage. And we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.